Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Ramblick and thanks for joining me for this podcast. Over the past week we've heard a lot about tertiary education and the way in which the federal government is making changes to the funding mix uh, for certain courses in order to uh, restructure the mix. Now there are a range of reasons why this is occurring, one of which is the fact that there isn't as great an overseas cohort coming into the country, but also the government is flipping the funding around to reflect some of its policy priorities in terms of uh, other professions. And there may also be, if you check my other podcast out with Sinclair Davidson, which went up uh, the other day, um, a goal of making those who are able to get longer term employment and secure employment to be able to pay more for their degree, pay for their degrees sooner. So you get a raft of considerations. It's not as um, it's not as um, monochromal or as um, myopic in terms of vision as some people would have you believe. Now today we're going to talk about some tax aspects of tertiary education, and most predominantly the actual fee that people pay. Um, which we normally known over history as being the higher education contribution scheme. Now, Lisa Gregg, our tax expert on this particular program and also tax agent, is going to take us through some of the issues you need to worry about in terms of the accrual of that debt and also when you're required to pay it. Lisa, thanks for joining me today. Thanks very much, Tom. Now, in a what we've seen play out over the past week is a lot of politics, whether it be on Twitter, whether it be in you know, print, radio and broadcast uh, media. What are the issues that those people that are about to enter university or have started their courses or are concluding need to think about when they look at the issue of when they pay the amount they owe for a course. Well, that's exactly right, Tom, when they pay it, because the lovely thing about our university system, and even though there was a lot of mileage, as we know, about the cost of our tertiary courses, um, the lovely thing about it is when you're young and at university, you don't have to find the money to pay it. It basically becomes a tax office debt. So HEX is actually a HEX debt, as we call it, and you don't have to pay any amount up front. You can just delay it via the tax system. So, in effect, the government pays the university the amount of your course and then it sits there as a great big mortgage debt, whatever you want to call it, in your tax file with the ATO. That's where it goes. Well, it might go there and it sits there. Um, in other words, it parks in a spot, yeah. <laughs> in a pi- in a pigeonhole associated with your uh, tax file number. Mm-hmm. Uh, at what point do you start to um, reduce that amount that's sitting in that pigeonhole related to your education debt? Yeah, so what basically happens is the ATO have decided what a reasonable amount of income 
and it's not just taxable income as we talk about it, so assessable income minus deductions. There's a few little fudge factors that happen, like anyone that's dealing with Services Australia know that sometimes it's a little bit adjusted, which is what we put in our tax return when we worry about those um, that section of the tax return where the adjustments happen, like reportable fringe benefits and, and those sort of things. Uh, but basically, as soon as you get to a certain income that gets juggled and adjusted for CPI and then reduced down and things like that, it's, a, it's around about somewhere between 45 and 55 it's been for a number of years since the repayment has been about. So what happens is once you hit some sort of taxable income when you lodge your tax return and you hit that threshold, the, the ATL have got, can have a line of sight over your hex debt and they say, okay, once you hit this threshold, you need to pay one to up to 10% now it is of your, um, so let's call it taxable income for argument's sake, but so basically your tax to repay your fee help or your hex debt. And that's how it works. Okay, so that means, you know, once you hit income level, let's say X dollars, mm -hmm. it triggers the payment. Yeah, automatically, just like automatically. if you had any sort of or any of government debt that everyone will collect from, and you know, if you've got a debt to Services Australia, it'll get collected with your refund. However, what happens with your fee help debt or your hex debt is that um, you'll get an additional tax burden, if you want to call it that, on the repayment, and it's you know one or two percent, not of the debt but of your taxable income in effect for the year. So that's how it happens. And so when you receive your tax estimate with your lovely coloured bar graphs that you still get, there will be a component of that when you look at it going, yep, this is my Medicare levy, this is this, this is that, different things like that, some adjustments. If you've got private health insurance, there'll also be a, a hex debt repayment that goes into there. Now, the thing okay. is what's happened over the past little bit, Tom, is... The number was um, the number was around about you know the fifty two thousand sort of mark. I'm not giving exact numbers because numbers are pretty boring when we're talking on these sort of things. You know exact numbers because it's always down to the you know the dollar level, um, and then you had to repay two percent of it. Then what's happened for this year is the number's gone down, so there's more people that needs to repay their 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 debt, but the percentage is only one percent. So they're trying to make people pay things, pay off their hex debt sooner rather than later and I actually looked it up from the last ATO data because I thought this was interesting because you always hear about how, how much it is so the last um, numbers that the ATO provided there's 3.2 million people out there I'll call them people not necessarily taxpayers out there that have got got some sort of um, tertiary debt and it's worth 66 billion dollars so that's what we're trying to recoup or what we we who want to uh, use the taxes, we're trying to recoup that out, out of um, the uh, payment for the the university courses. One of the interesting things about uh, uh, work these days is there are a lot of people who are either casual or they freelance and their income is very patchy, lumpy. Um, what happens in the case of someone that's whose income one year goes up and they pay a portion of the hex debt, but the next year it's it's like a roller coaster it is. Um, trough. 
what happens in those situations could because there will be people listening to this who will think well if my uh, if I hit or the threshold or go beyond the threshold for payment I've got to pay the hex uh, hex debt off in accordance with what the requirements are but what happens if my work gets slumpy the following year you don't need to pay it back unless you hit that threshold so um Things where uh, you don't need to pay it back, let's have a think about it. So if we, we say we've got um, a family that has a child and then one of those parents stay at home. I'm trying to be be very um, not stereotypical at all with that, 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 that one of the spouses stay at home or they might repay their tax debt for a few years until they go back into the workforce. And so that's one where it wouldn't get paid. One where some of my clients get caught out, which is quite interesting, is where um, the the students that have just started working or the students have got a part-time job at DJs or something like that, right, or Coles or whatever, and they, they're used to getting distributions from the family trust. Then all of a sudden, you know, grandma gives the distributions like they always do from the family trust and they think they're doing the right thing by distributing um, and, and splitting the income and all of a sudden you go, oh dear, that adult child's just got to start repaying their hex debt because they've hit the threshold. So they're two things where, yes, you now have to pay it and then other times when you don't have to pay it. That's important for people to understand because um, the, uh, the current employment environment is tough and... Uh, and not just because of COVID, there are certain areas like uh, journalism or entertainment and arts, in any case, that are challenged in, to, in uh, relation to how much people are going to get through the front door for doing that kind of work. Uh, Lisa, what are the other considerations people need to have in relation to uh, HEX and how they deal with the... Uh, the debt that's on uh, on the on their plate, basically. Yeah, well, in the in a pre-COVID world, if we can remember back that far, Tom, one of the interesting ones was always um, the obligatory uh, couple of years working overseas rule that seems to come about. And I'm sure you've got many many friends and uh, peers that have done that. They, you know, friends that go over to the UK and work for a few years or work somewhere else and things like that. And so what the ATO identified or Treasury identified was that there's a lot of people that are repaying their hex debt when they've uh, juggernauted over somewhere else because they're then becoming non-residents. So there was, a, there was a legislation that got passed in 2015, that's how recent that was, um, that any um, from January 2016, anyone who left Australia with a hex debt, they had to do um, some paperwork to tell, them that, tell the uh, ATO that they were leaving and then they also have to repay the hex debt on their non-Australian income, so their worldwide income. So they, they're obliged, even though the ATA might not have line of sight over the extra actual numbers, they've got to basically uh, fill in a form and even repay the debt even when they're non-Australian residents. So that was a big thing and a big push that came through, and that's why I looked up... Uh, the debt number today when we were talking about what the topic was going to be because that was what triggered it. And when I remember back then in 2016, the debt was about $60, $60 billion and that's what they were looking to recoup. 
So that's uh, one of the things that have really come about. Now, I haven't got any data to support if everyone's doing that correctly or not, but that's what you're meant to do. So if anyone's listening to the podcast with with children or people they know over there that's still got a hex debt, um, they should be paying that. The other thing to be um, mindful of is that uh, there's no interest component on the loan, which I thought was interesting. So it's not like if you've if you've got a normal tax debt, so you haven't paid your income tax or you haven't paid uh, your GST or something like that, the ATO are really quick on, on putting GIC on it, general interest charge or shortfall interest charge on it. Uh, with the hex debt, it's not uh, you don't pay interest on it. Uh, you are just it's just indexed every year, um, and you know, and it's indexed to CPI, so it's quite small at the moment. So I thought that was a quite an interesting thing. So it's not like you're paying copious amounts of interest on it. Uh, the other thing that I find interesting with hex debt as well is it basically dies on death. Can I say it like that, Tom? I think that makes sense, doesn't it? So all your other tax debts basically need to get extracted out of the estate. Okay, so we've got any, but given that this is a debt, but it's only administered by the ATO, what you basically do if someone dies is you need to do a final tax return for them. And on that final tax return, if they've still got a got a hex debt, um, you've got to pay that component, but you only have to pay the hex back while they were alive. So the day after they, they, they've died, the, uh, the, the hex debt basically dies with them, which is quite interesting. The other thing that we note about hex debt is that um, we have a lot. We have people that uh, basically claim bankruptcy, okay, and sometimes they claim bankruptcy to get out of their tax debts. Guess what? With a hex debt, it's still on foot. It doesn't go away when you file for bankruptcy. So they're the few things that are a little bit different with uh, hex debt compared to normal tax debt. I think there's a there's another uh, issue we need to talk about in more detail, which you've raised in terms of how tax impacts on somebody's estate, mm-hmm. um, which we may do in a subsequent mm-hmm. podcast. Because I think that I think people need to understand some of this stuff, and it's not pleasant talking about what needs to happen when somebody you know, dies, but it's a critical issue, and I'm not sure people think about how the tax obligations work when somebody passes on. And that, that, that's actually quite an interesting topic. But it, the Hexted itself um, is kind of interesting in the context of the current debate, isn't it? Because there are those who are talking about the cost of a degree mm-hmm. in the current debate when, in fact, yeah, you're not even... You're not getting uh, hit by interest on it. It sits there. Mm-hmm. You don't have to pay it until you actually start to earn above a threshold. Mm-hmm. If it falls below a threshold, then you stop paying it back. Paused. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the payment is paused. Um, is it unreasonable of me to ask one question, and that is, what the hell is the issue that we're talking about? It's quite, it's quite interesting, isn't it, Tom, really? Because um, I listened intently to um, your previous uh, podcast and 
Look, I did like one one subject on economics and, you know, you just basically do it, pass it and, and, and move on if you don't want to be an economist sort of thing. But um, education is inelastic and we talked about it um, earlier today as well that I really I went, hang on, that's right. You know, all of a sudden the light bulb went off from, you know, my one unit of economics and it's, and it's true. I think that um, people will pay for education what they have to pay for it. What did Sinclair say? He basically said it's like it's like medication and that's when it clicked to me because that's the standard example they give of inelasticity. In I don't know if I've said that correctly but you know what I mean, um, that uh, if people are sick they'll pay whatever they need for the drug sort of thing and it's the same with education. If you really want to do law or if you really want to do an arts degree, you really want to do a history degree, um, you'll do it. Now, they're saying that people from lower socioeconomic um, areas is, is what's happening in, in, in the commentary at the moment, saying that it will be a factor in what they pay for education. But then in other commentary, where I think it's an issue is that um, it's can you afford to live while you're studying? So can you get a youth allowance or can you get study or whatever it is? And where it comes down to for me, because I've, had this great pleasure of getting quite a couple of degrees. So if I go back to pre-HEX, I can say that, my first degree with in science and chemistry at Monash Uni uh, early in the 80s, that's showing my age, isn't it, uh, that uh, I had a lot of contact hours because it was a practical subject. So you basically had to be there a lot. So to get a part-time job when you've got a lot of contact hours as well as doing your study on the side – um, was quite difficult and you weren't very flexible. However, when I went back and did my accounting degree, I didn't have as many contact hours. There was no prep component, so I was a lot more flexible with my time. So even though I didn't have to, I could have easily got a part-time job that way. So I see the argument, and this has nothing to do with tax, this is just Lisa's opinion, in being can you actually afford to do the do the course, not in terms of the 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 um, the price of the course, but can you afford to live and give that course justice, if I can say that, you know, do enough times. So I know I know you're doing part-time study at the moment as well, and I know that you've got to allocate your time very carefully because you want to do the best essay you can on terrorism or whatever you're doing. So it's all to do with can you live and learn the most and have the best learning outcomes from doing that course I think is more of an issue than the price of the course, in my opinion. I think it, it's an interesting point you raise because the debate has really centred on some ideological conflict where when you think about you know, the, the issue of you know, kids leaving home, kids moving somewhere to do a course because University A offers a course that's more highly regarded than University B. Um, you've got rent rental issues you know, you've got food, you've got utilities, you've got all that sort of stuff. So it becomes a question, as you say, of all the other expenses, because you've got the course, the course fee can be parked forever and a day. Exactly. You can never pay so it back if you really want to. 
I mean, he, I mean, I'm sure people do want to be successful in a career. <laughs> well, I'm not saying, well, see, I, don't, I don't think. That's another argument, Tom. Is success based on remuneration or not? But that's a whole other story we can go into. But if you want to keep earning, you know, $45,000 a year or whatever, you're happy to do that and you can live on a bush shack on the beach or something, you can never have to pay your course back, you know? Well, it. That's that's part of the debate that isn't really being had, as far as I can tell, in in, a, in any real meaningful way, because it's all turned into, um, as many things seem to, and I'm not sure why we do this. Uh, they've turned this debate's turned into a culture war rather than a, a how do we uh, how do we get yeah, sure, you talk about an affordable education, but how do people get jobs so they can pay for, for living expenses while they're studying? Well, yeah, that's, that's, that's part of it, definitely, Tom. And you look at the evolution of even charging for university courses and things like that, and you look at, well, what are we trying to do here? Are we trying to make a smarter country? Are we trying to get more people off unemployment? There's a number of different scenarios to look at the the need behind the need or the message behind the message that comes across as well, I think. You're right. Uh, but the, the need, there's a, a discussion that needs to be had in relation to how this stuff falls into place and how people deal with it. Um, in terms of uh, the public debate and public discourse, mm, because yeah. the very, the very, what we saw a week or so ago was uh, this huge discussion about um, an announcement about tertiary education being hidden uh, behind this. Announcement about cyber attacks and awareness raising about computer stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And it, 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 a week on, I'm not sure we've successfully moved on to the point that you and I have been discussing tonight, which is when do people have to pay this thing back and when does it really become an issue? Correct. Correct. Because we can defer it. And... It's a deferral of an investment in yourself. So it's it's brand Tom or brand Lisa or whatever. So you're investing in yourself. And I don't think anyone out there would say that investing in your own education is a bad investment at all. I don't think we get any, any um, pushback on that. And so we're investing in ourselves and the interest component of that investment of capital is pretty much negligible because we're in a very, very low CPI environment, you know, verging on, on negative. And so that's where I think the, you know, the, the discussion has got lost a little bit in that. Uh, and that's where there's been a lot of drama and a, and a lot of uh, click bait, as you know, I, I call it, with people going, oh, what are people talking about here? That, you know, you've got to just sit back and go, okay, I'm going to invest in my own education. What's that going to cost me down the track? There's something else with, with the, that the, 
there might be, I mean, that's worth sort of raising here, Lisa. If we can pivot a little, uh, given that we're heading into June 30, mm -hmm. you know, some people uh, do things for self-education. Yes. Um, and one of the complex, com well, I guess not so much complexities, but uh, the way in which people um, look at what they're doing in courses and other bits and pieces and whether or not that is deductible, which is a slightly different question to HEX, um, because you can pay for a unit in a course. At what point does something like that become a deductible expense list or something that you can claim a deduction for? Yeah, it's really interesting, Tom, um, and it's 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 a, it's a long-winded answer. But let me just go back to the fundamentals, and I think this is where people sometimes get it wrong. Going, I'm going, I've got I've got it every right to claim a tax deduction for X, right? And we've said it in previous podcasts: is it's got to be a connection, or as we say in legal parlance, a nexus between the income-producing activity and the deduction. So the first one is if you do any education or any self-education, CPD, continuing professional development or anything like that, um, it's got to be relevant to you earning your assessable income at that time. Um, now, it doesn't have to be directly linked to getting promotion or new, more remuneration, but it's still got to be directly relevant to your role. Okay, that's the first thing. Where people think that they can claim things is what we call in the too soon basket. You can't do that. Okay, so if you're studying to be a you know, anything, a nurse or whatever, um, no matter what's involved in terms of those sort of fees, if you're not doing a placement where you're earning income, you can't claim that. That's too soon. Okay. Now, um, I'm not an expert on the way the fee structure works, Tom, because I think you probably need a fairly big degree in education slash economics and everything like that. But I believe that there is, um, there's like full fee paying parts, like a post-grad course, so maybe like what you're doing. Um, and then there's one that's the, the Commonwealth, it's Commonwealth subsidised or something like that from memory. So, um I think education, I don't know if it still is, but education used to be subsidised. I think nursing used to be subsidised. So even if you were working and doing those courses, you still couldn't claim the deduction if it was Commonwealth subsidised spot. However, if you're doing a post-grad diploma and it's directly relevant um, to, to your uh, earning capacity, then, of course, it would be deductible. But it's all to do with, um, it's all to do with, is it, necessarily connected with your uh, earning your accessible income and of course once you can create that nexus then things like claiming kilometers to travel to the to the university course claiming books I mean and that's probably irrelevant with COVID a bit silly um, but you know books and subscriptions and things like that anything associated with that and the other thing we need to be wary of as well is that uh, the deduction is a self-education expense if it's from a tertiary institution where if it's from a member-based organisation like we're members of, it then is 
continuing professional development and it's a work-related deduction. So there's two different things. And the thing with self-education expenses is you can't claim the first $250 for it. Don't know why. No one can give me a really good reason why they pluck that number out of the air, but that's what it's to do with. Okay, so anyone out there that is looking at their uh, any education they've done needs to think carefully about whether or not they're able to claim that as part of their um, uh, suite of deductions for 2019-20. Yeah, exactly. And just because you've 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 parked it over into the uh, the tax space. Uh, in the tax debt, um, if it's still incurred, so to speak, so you've basically still got a obligation to pay it, it still could be de deductible. It just depends on a number of factors. But it does become a little bit tricky, so it's on a case-by-case -case basis. This is not providing tax advice as all, Tom, as you know. And um, go and talk to your friendly tax agent, tax accountant, uh, to make sure yeah. that you're claiming what you need to claim. Now, that, that probably is a convenient spot to remind people that as we talk about these issues, there will be times you need to either consult the ATO website if you're self-assessing, or even better, go to a properly qualified and registered uh, tax professional uh, who will be able to assist you, because one of the things that uh, you don't want to do is to make a mistake on your tax return and then have to deal with the uh, the backwash of that. Correct. Much better for you to do it right the first time, as we say. Absolutely. Uh, now, Lisa, is there anything happening on the JobKeeper front at the moment with the, with the people you look after? Uh, no, actually. Can I say that? No. There were, there's there's yeah, rumours of... You're, you're allowed to say no. It was just an amber claim. Yeah, I know. I'm just sort of thinking, is there anything that I'm, I'm sort of waiting to, you know, look look under the rock and see if something springs up? There's some review that's meant to be happening like third week in July, but is that going to actually transcend? Um I feel that there is a strong push on keeping JobKeeper pretty much as is. Uh, up until September and then see what happens. Uh, there are uh, industries that have not been successful with JobKeeper, as we know, that are starting to get a few lifelines coming through. And after the announcement today about Qantas as well, I think that we may be in for a little bit of a longer isolation than what we had anticipated, Tom. So I'm hoping that nothing changes for my cohort of JobKeeper clients up till September. And uh, we'll just see what happens then when maybe the plug gets pulled, maybe it doesn't. So we just need to, as I said, let's wait and see. But I think um, it sounds to me that you might not get back to any sort of new normal until 2021. Okay, that's probably where we can close things off for this week. Lisa, thanks for joining me this week uh, for another Natter Through the Tax Matter. Oh, I um, like that. Natter through the tax matter. You've been working on that one, Tom. That's what it is. This is I'm all day working on it. <laughs> Did you copy it copyright been... it already, Tommy? Yeah. No, 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 I haven't yet. So no, anybody listening to that, <laughs> don't nick it. But um, 
Yeah, I've been working on that all day. I'm good on you. That's good. No, no, no. That, as I said, this is meant to be a casual conversation about tax and trying to put it into enough uh, lay terms to, for someone to get something out of it to then drill down and work out whether it's appropriate for them. So I hope hope our listeners have enjoyed it again. Okay. Now, thank you very much, Lisa. And for those listening, uh, if there are any issues that you're concerned about, go and um, have a look at... Um, look at the ACA website or alternatively go to a registered tax agent and seek professional advice. Don't get yourself into trouble. Lisa and I will talk again next week. In the meantime, stay safe and look after each other.